0: Jordan, this is Collateral Repair Podcast, a production of Collateral Repair Project.
1: Collateral Repair Project provides holistic support in the form of basic needs assistance and trauma relief programming to vulnerable urban refugees living in Amman, Jordan.
0: We've decided to make this podcast to bring the stories of some of the individuals from the refugee community at Collateral Repair Project and share them with you. This episode, our first, covers the topic of education, the average refugee or displaced kid misses about 2 years of school. But part of the point of this podcast is to move beyond just talking about the statistics affiliated with refugees and go into the stories uh, by talking to refugees themselves.
1: You know, when you when you think about this, so Aaron had this stat about 2 years children out of school for 2 years. And if you think about someone's life, what does that what does that do? You know, what what does that mean for a child if they have that year of school versus not having it. Have two years of school versus not having it. Where does the consequences of that, of that lead for a person's life? Um, a lot of the time when we talk about this, uh, we tend to see this as a really black and white issue. I mean, it, it is in some ways. You know, the children will be better off with education. They're better off with basic literacy and numeracy. Uh, but talking to supporters and and donors, oftentimes things that I hear are, you know, we need to just get these kids back in school or, or, you know, why aren't the parents allowing the children in school or what are the decisions their children are making? And there's this, this, this very, what I I feel like is a, can be a, uh, a black and white understanding or surface level of understanding. I believe that every single individual makes the best decisions that they can with the information they have in the situation they're in everybody goes into these things choosing what is best for them and so we need to understand why why a parent might choose to allow their their child to not be in school or why a child might choose to not go to school you know what what feeds into that decision what are the actual experiences at school what are the challenges of re-entering an educational environment after two years of not being into it. So just, please, listen, consider people's motivations, and as you understand the consequences of these actions, please have some empathy for the people who are making these decisions.
0: We have two interviews today. The first is with an Iraqi refugee student in Jordan now. He moved from Iraq when he was 14, and now he is 18. His name is Suleiman that'll be our first interview and then we will play you a second interview with our education specialist at Kalao Repair Project. Her name is Karam.
2: So can you give me some background about why your family left Iraq and how old you were at the time?
3: My family um, left. We left Iraq in two thousand seven, in the beginning of two thousand seven, right after Saddam Hussein was executed. The reason we left is that um, my father was kidnapped in the in late two thousand six, and um, he was kidnapped for about eight days, and uh, we had to pay a ransom. Uh, but the kidnappers did not let him go. He want they wanted to. Kill him um, because he was Sunni. Um, and fu- funny enough, the people who actually kidnapped him were Sunna.
2: So they were exploiting the new instability in Iraq.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, so he paid the ransom, but they didn't let my father go. Um, but in a miracle, the Americans came to the area and they were sort of, you know, doing a, re- a routine check, sweeping the area for. Uh, you know suspicious activity uh, weapons stuff like that and the kidnappers left and uh, my father realized that they left and um, he managed to um, to release himself from his uh, from his from the um, from the restraints on his hand and he managed to escape the way I felt I was almost um, belligerent towards my father. I was feeling angry, and I kind of blamed it, blamed it, blamed him for what had happened. But I was a child. Yeah, you were a kid. Um, but then he took the initiative and he approached me. And then when he actually gave me a hug, I realized how. I realized how okay the situation was now. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything was okay now. Mm. It's gone. It's over. And I remember crying, but it was a very sort of, um, it wasn't a cry of, of, oh, I'm hurt. It was a cry of happiness. I think that's mm-hmm. the first time I've ever cried out of happiness. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Um, so why, why did your family leave Syria uh, to come to Jordan?
3: My father suggested the idea of going to Jordan. Um, and the media was going nuts over the the things that were going on in Dara'a at the time, mm-hmm. I remember. Uh, it was sort of the, the start of the revolution was in Dara'a. And the media was going crazy, um, but it had not reached Damascus yet. But my father said, it's better to leave now than to stay here and get stuck.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So, uh, it turns out he knew a war when he saw one. And uh, we, we were in Jordan by June, of 2011.
2: So why did you leave school? And um, what did your parents say when you decided to leave school?
3: So it, it kind of dropping out of school came in steps. It started with me not going to school like on a normal school day I would not go and my parents didn't really question it you know because they knew how bad school was for me and they understood how uninterested i was i was in school so they didn't really protest that much but i remember you know like there were times where i would go absent for like 14 14 days or something um and then i would come back and then they the school would have me sign a contract that i would never be absent again mm. but then i'd go absent again because i don't really care uh and then they they go over that again but the main reason why I kept winning, going back to school and not uh, being accepted back was because my father was completely in agreement with it. Like He, he didn't mind. He was like, you know, he would come with me to school and say, oh, we had some family stuff and he couldn't really come. Um, and he always made up excuses for me because he understood how I felt. Um, so during that time, I had formulated my decision that I was going to leave school the year after. I'm not going to attend Tenth grade in this school, um, and my decision was um, was further backed up by the fact that they were going to move us to another school because they don't they don't take tenth graders. They were going to move us to another school. Um, there was a lot. There was filled with sort of bigger kids because they only the other school only took eleventh till twelfth. Mm. So it's filled with bigger kids with much bigger problems. And those were the kind of kids who had, you know, knives and stuff. And my brother had attended that school, and he said it was horrible. And the teachers are a lot more rigorous there. Uh, not in their teaching, but in their disciplinary um, mm-hmm. uh, approach.
2: Like corporal punishment?
3: Oh, yeah, totally. I got hit so many times when I was in school. They use this, uh, this big old plastic tube that they use for water. Mm-hmm. Um, they buy, it, they buy it from like a supply shop. They tape one end of it where they, they handle. And uh, if you do something wrong or if, the enti- if one, of the, uh, one person in the classroom does something wrong, the entire classroom gets punished. And that happened a lot. I didn't do anything. Why am I getting hit? And I was sort of screaming for um, independence and justice. I don't know. But th- that was a defining moment in who I became to be. Because now I'm not, I, I refuse to get uh, subjected to something that was wrong or unjust. Um, so it, I learned a lot, sure, but there's other ways of learning that. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but your parents basically recognized that your self-esteem was sort of dwindling and that you weren't really learning anything yeah. and so they just Didn't want to put you through it anymore. So no.
3: so it was yes. Yes, that's my my parents understood how bad it was But they weren't the ones who who got me out of school um, So in the summer uh, In the summer of 2014
2: after ninth grade.
3: Yeah in the summer 2014 I had spoken to my father about it. I was like, dad, I don't want to go back to school. I want to drop out. Um, And he didn't, he thought about it. He sort of stared blankly and then he was like, okay, if you don't want to continue, that's fine. That's your choice. My mother, on the other hand, she disapproved. And I think part of the reason is that she didn't actually see the school, see the school herself. My father did. He saw my classroom, he saw my teachers. And uh, he understood that it wasn't too good. My mother had never seen the school, and I think that sort of affected how she um, reacted with when I told her of, of what I want. But that did not stop me from dropping out because my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, he uh, he supported my decision, and. He he and my he and my mother have a really close relationship. So my brother in law were was able to speak to my mother and convince her of you know, letting it go for now. Uh, I felt like, you know, it can wait because any decision that, that any major decision was really backed up by I'm gonna travel soon and this is not going to be for a long time which is not a very which is not a correct mentality or mindset.
2: So, what was life like for you out out of school after you left school?
3: Mm. Well, dormant during that time I didn't really do anything. I remember, you know, because so I I wasn't completely dormant. So my so my friend, he kept he he still went to CRP and then he dragged me along with him.
2: So how did your parents help you during this time? Did they help you um, like focus your time or um, encourage you to keep learning on your own or anything like that?
3: They really liked it. They really, really liked it when they saw me reading a book. I remember the first book I read was Pride and Prejudice. So it took me like two months. Uh, I, I, used to, I had to hold my phone in one hand and the other in the other hand hold the book because there were a lot of words that I did not know. And I remember I I really liked the book and I liked how it progressed Uh, and I really, I genuinely enjoyed it. It was like the first time it was my first English book but also was the first time I felt that thrill of reading.
2: During this time how did you feel about yourself when you were out of school?
3: I felt Hmm, interesting question.
2: It's probably a complicated question. There there might be more than one answer to this question. So
3: I'll start off with um, how I felt towards others who do go to school, mm-hmm. who are also refugees. I felt almost, I don't know, I felt that they were doing the wrong thing. Um, a lot of my friends have stayed in school, those who were, um, And in, I remember in my, sphere, in my sphere of friends, I was the only one to go to school. And I was always criticized for it. They, they would always say, you know, why are you going to school? It's useless, it's pointless. Um, and some others really wanted to go back to school and go, you know, you're kind of lucky. And they wanted to come back with me, but they would always hold off that decision. Um... But after I actually dropped out, I remember feeling like um, feeling almost a need to advise others to leave school. Mm. It's kind of weird, but one of my friends, for example, I saw, he was with me in class, and he was Iraqi. And he said he, he was still in school, and I was like, why are you still in school? That's, that's pointless. Why, why are you just drop out and do something else? Uh, which was not really a, a good way, a good thing to say, but at the time, I was feeling that not going to school was a lot better than going into school in Jordan, mm-hmm. in a public school. that's that's how I felt. But towards myself, I didn't have a I didn't feel less self-esteem because my self-esteem was already uh, damaged when I was in school. I was being controlled by others. And if something happens, I completely have no say in what, what whatsoever. Uh, but now, being out of school, I felt more free. Um, and I felt more like a human. I didn't feel like... Um, I didn't feel like a slave like I did in school.
2: Alright, so let's talk about the good stuff. Okay. Um. How did you decide to apply for King's Academy?
3: So. I had, wait, let me remember this. Right. So I had. It's interesting. I had went through one of those phases where I dropped CRP for a while, and sort of gathered myself because, if you remember, you you probably remember. Uh, in 12, 20, no, 2015, 2016, probably 2016, there was this big boom, uh, there was this big refugee crisis where people would go over to Turkey, mm-hmm. cross the Asian Sea, and go to uh, Europe, yep. Greece, and then they would go. And a lot of people from hashbis decided to go that way. Syrians, Iraqis, Iraqis, um, my best friend, the one who I mentioned earlier, uh, his mother decides to pack everything and go that way. Um, so he left, and I, I was alone. Uh, he didn't make it. He he crossed the sea. Well, he didn't cross the sea. He he um, they got to the sea, but then they returned because it was it was it was cold. It, this was December, so it was cold. It was um, the the sea was a bit you know um not not very
2: choppy
3: yeah choppy and uh yeah they they didn't go through with it so they went back to Iraq because they couldn't back go, go back come back to Jordan because leaving Jordan without paying the fines means that you have to basically ban yourself from entering the country for the next 5 years mm-hmm. so that's what they did uh, so uh I was away from my friend, uh, I had just underwent a major sh- uh, surgery in my, in my right foot, I have a club foot, and I, I got that corrected. Um, so I kind of, you know, dropped CRP for a while. Then I decided to go back after a while, um, and I saw Amanda, and she's, she brought it up. She's like, you know. You're, you know, you're in a good spot, um, and uh, she, she had always criticized me for leaving school, always, and she said it's time for you to go back. Have you ever thought about going back? And I was like, yeah, I definitely th- did think about that, but I don't want to go back to a public school. That's absolutely not what I want. So she said, you know what, you know, go, you know, uh, research it. If you see a school, if you find a school online that you like in Jordan, um maybe they offer scholarships, or maybe CRP can um CRP can help you with uh your your tuition. And I was like, okay. So I went online, found a bunch of private schools in Jordan. Not ones like American Community Schools or King's, but ones that are like Um, local private schools local
2: private schools that somewhat well-to-do Jordanians might send their kids to but probably not of the same level that expats or very wealthy Jordanians are sending their kids to
3: right well there were still a lot of wealthy wealthy people there but it was generally speaking it was just better than a public school Um, so I, I wrote the fees down I wrote the tuition fees and they were like two thousand for a year, so mm-hmm. it wasn't it wasn't that much compared to Kings, um, and I went to Amanda, and I was like, this is what I got, and she's like, you know what, we're thinking about having you. I was I also met with Tim at the mm-hmm. time. It was the first time I met Tim, and she said, you know, we're why not something like Kings or American Community Schools uh, school and i was like no way you're you're insane i can never go into the, into one of those schools they're so much out of my league and i was feeling very uncomfortable with it i was like no i've been out of school for 3 years
2: you were I, about 17 at the time yeah
3: i was 17 yeah i was like, mm, no 16 yeah i was 17. 17 and i was like no that's impossible but then she was like no let's give it a shot write an essay let's talk about your experiences and uh, we'll send it to the school, and we'll see um, what what they say. So I wrote this essay. It was horrible. It was my first essay. Tim helped me, you know, revise it and stuff. No structure, no nothing. I read over it the other day. It was horrible. Uh, but apparently the superintendent in, in in American Community School liked it. And she, she said, as for kings, just go online and apply for it. So I did. I answered all the questions. Um, and then... Um,
2: Did you have to take a test?
3: Right. I took the the SSAT. Um,
2: You had to take the SAT?
3: SSAT. Oh. Uh, Which is nothing close to the SAT. But it was was a relatively easy test. Basic math, basic English. And I did well on that. Except for the math section. Uh, And I met with the deputy headmaster. I went to see the school. I shadowed one of the students. And... Well, I got I got accepted the next year, The next day, I got called by the uh, admissions, uh, the dean of admissions, and she said you got accepted. So then I had to go through the journey of securing financial aid, which was a really stressful and difficult time. Not the uh, not like I went over uh, one one wander the streets and asking for uh, money to pay for my tuition which would take me forever because the tuition was so much. But the people who were there, the Dean of, the dean of Admissions, um, he's the one who found my uh, tuition. It took a while. It took was, a few months, right? It took a few months. I was really stressed. I didn't know what was coming, but he eventually got me the money that I needed. And now I'm in Kings. The, the Dean of Admissions, is he passed away he had cancer mm. um, and when i came into my first year in kings he had he had left so last year was his last year in kings um so yeah i i'm, I'm kind of feeling bad that i didn't get to personally just hold his hand and say thank you mm-hmm. because he's the one who went through all the trouble of finding my the finding the money i needed
2: uh, so King's is one of the best boarding schools in the Middle East. Um, you board during the week and then you come home on the weekend. Um, what's that transition like going from this boarding school and coming back to Hashmi Shamali?
3: Oh, that's, that's actually a good question. So every weekend when I come back from King's and come into Hashmi, I get culture shocked, like stunned. Um, because Kings is an entirely different community. It's really secluded from the rest of the Jordanian community. Uh, Most of the people there are more open and they're more liberal in their mindset and the way they dress and the way they speak. Um, So coming back to Hashmi is just a completely different experience. And I sort of, I, I felt like in the beginning, I didn't really notice it, but then... Slowly, I started to notice just how, you know, there's completely polar opposites. Um, and I still get culture shocks every weekend or every holiday. But the thing is, in winter break, um, in winter, I, in winter break, so, sorry, a lot of things are going through my head now. Sure, take as long as you want. Um, but when it, when I say culture shock, I come from Kings and I get culture shocked about Hashmi but going back from Hashmi to Kings I don't get culture shocked
0: hmm.
3: um, but in winter break for three weeks I stayed in Hashmi and then after three weeks I came back to Kings and I felt completely out of my place I was like what the heck am I doing here you know this place is totally different and I felt like I, I had to go through that same acclimation period that I went in the beginning of the year mm-hmm and I, I, me and Tim is a teacher in Kings. Yeah. I don't know if you, yeah. we have not mentioned that, but um, we spoke sometimes, and I told him how I felt. And uh, you know, he's like, "Don't worry about it. It's, it's. You know, you, you'll, you'll get used to it again." But it was definitely a weird, fe- a weird feeling, feeling out, out of place. I felt like that a lot in Kings, but then slowly, you start to appreciate your own worth um, and I suppose in a way you, you get used to it
2: mm-hmm. yeah. so what are your favorite things about kings
3: well, first of all it has a lot of smart people it has a lot of people who genuinely want to improve their community they have a trait that is they're altruistic um, and they want to actually benefit not just Jordan but the entirety of the of the Middle East. On the other hand, there are students who spent their entire time in the uh, kazia, which is the the school store. They go and buy stuff, chocolate, sandwiches, croissants, whatever. And they spent their entire time there. And they... So in, 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 in that kazia, we don't have to pay money. We have a card. Mm. We, we sw- swap the card, we buy whatever we want, and then the money gets... Um, uh, put into our accounts that oh you paid, you bought you bought this and this is what you owe us. There's students who spend like, sorry, <laughs> there's students who spend, who spend like three thousand JDs a month on what? just it's unbelievable. They spend like so much money, and they care nothing. They care about nothing except themselves and their friends, and uh, what they're gonna do for dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are. Still, the, the, some of them are pretty smart. Some of them are pretty apathetic. They don't care. you know. They, whether they study or not, they're still going to have a warm bed to sleep at night and something to eat and uh, pocket money for the week. Um, but I think the the biggest thing that I like about Kings that I actually love about Kings is just how diverse, diverse it is. Mm-hmm. Not when, not just when it comes to nationalities and where students are from, but also diverse in socioeconomic backgrounds. Mm-hmm. There are students from all over, like the social classes of Jordan. There are students who are like me, come home to uh, an area that is buzzing with noise and 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 cars and just dreadful, dreadful. Um, white noise all the time that you can't sleep and there are people who go to Dabuk, this area that's full of villas and just out of this world Um, and I I think they all share sort of one the school it's funny they they put a pedestal for those who are not uh, like myself they put a financial pedestal so they can afford being at kings Mm
0: -hmm.
3: so in kings everyone is equal
2: Has there been bullying at Kings or kids who, like, just don't get what your circumstances are or anything like that? Oh, yeah.
3: I remember this one time. um, So in Kings, I took some activities that made me feel like a real aristocrat. Um, Huh, I just noticed something. Aristocrat. Aristocrat. No, aristocrat. (laughs) Like, aristocrat. (laughs) Aristocrat. Yeah, it made me feel like a real aristocrat. Um, so the first cocoa I took was horseback riding, and we'd wear the boots, we'd wear the tight pants, um, and we'd wear the helmet, uh, and we'd so go. So
2: Western with, style horseback riding, yes. not like Arab horseback nope, riding.
3: No, we, we don't wear a dasha and go off to the desert. We definitely <laughs> don't do that. And the stables that we went to were actually the king's private property. Like there were his horses, his stable. Uh, And the people who were with me were also like people Like who were acquainted with horseback riding And people who had money So one of the people there I remember one time I was going back home for the weekend And uh, she was sitting in front And we were talking And she was like "Um, Where do you live? In Amman And I was like I live in Hashmashimari She's like You live there? And I was like Yeah She's like Do you own a house there? Do you own like a Like a are you visiting? What's going on? And she was like... She asked me this question that was really weird. She asked me, do you have a... do you have a house there? I said, yes. And she said, muluk, which means, you own the house? And I was like, no, it's rent. And then it's like someone slapped her in the face. She went back and she was like, oh... It's not that she was sort of, oh you rent a house, you don't own one. She was just like, oh, I'm surprised because you, you, don't, you don't seem like it. So she associate m- me, or she associate people who rent houses instead of own them as being lowly mm. or different in, a, in an inferior way. So that kind of, um, that was a weird experience.
2: How did he feel?
3: I felt an assortment of things, <laughs> um, but I was, I was, I was kind of happy that I was able to represent those who, because she knows who I am. Uh, she knows what, what I've done. Um, and
2: so you gave her a different perspective.
3: Yeah, I did. I suppose I did. I, I hope I did. Um, and I think that sort of changed the way she saw people who rent houses instead of own them. And by that I mean a metaphor for people who don't have that much money. Yeah, yeah.
2: What about with like your brother? Because I mean, I I could see if he were a couple years younger, he could have been at Kings.
3: Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about that the other day. Because I'm in a I'm in a completely different environment than my family. Mm-hmm. Um, It's been a source of concern for me, uh, thinking about my brother brother specifically, because he's seen Kings, um, and he really likes it. And the other day he asked me if he can come and stay with me for a day to see how things are, to hang out. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll look into it. Um, But... It kind, of, it kind of depresses me every time I think about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Because there's nothing I can do. The only thing I can do is study and um, solidify my own future. But there's really nothing I can do about my family, which really sort of takes the whole meaning of what I'm doing right now. What's the point of me going to school and getting a proper education if my family's still in the mud and in a, in a house that's small and um, and damp and cold what's so what's what are they getting from my education and I remember thinking that if I do go to Kings but before I got accepted if I do go to Kings my main goal was to succeed so I can pass on that success to my family and now if you if you'd ask me what is my dream, I would say that it's probably to finish my education, go to college and as soon as possible be able to pull my family to pull my family out of the out of the rut that they're in, out of the hole that they're in. And thinking about my brother, that's probably like the, Because my brother is 20, my brother's 24 now. And My father was speaking to me the other day about how he sensed that my brother was feeling depressed because of where I am. But still, despite this, when I see my brother every weekend, he's happy to see me. He misses me. He tells me that a lot. And I miss them too. But I feel like I'm not doing enough. Yet. Yet.
2: So, What is ahead? I mean, you said you want to go to college hopefully in Europe or in America?
3: Yeah, probably America because my sister is in Colorado. I'll try to get it. I was thinking about applying for the University of Colorado in my Mm -hmm. senior year. And if that works out then great.
2: But that's a ways off and nothing is certain yet. So what about the short-term future? This summer? What are you doing this summer?
3: <laughs> I'm volunteering at CRP. <laughs> with
2: yeah. me. Yes,
3: yes, it's uh, it's going to be fun because uh, I miss CRP, the people there are great. Uh, and there's a certain experience that you get from working with the community closely like that, that really is unmatchable with any other um, work or voluntary, um, you know, I don't know I think I'm excited to come back I'm really excited because you know
2: so I know you have to get going really soon Um, what else is important for you to say
3: I don't know I don't know a lot it's uh, there are a lot of things to say there are a lot of things that are important. Important that need uh, that need awareness to be brought to it. There are a lot of things, and I can never encapsulate this in words. <laughs> you know, it's, it's There's a lot of there. There are a lot of things, um, but I think the most important one of them. The most important uh, thing. Uh, the most important thing uh, that people probably should know about is just how difficult it is to be an asylum seeker or a refugee, because it's the. Imagine when you went when you applied for college. You had to wait in order to get a response, right? Mm-hmm. You did everything you could. You you did everything beforehand in, in high school, and you're applying for this college that's, that you really want to get into. And I want you to imagine for now that the, accept, the acceptance rate of that college is not very, it's not very high, it's low. And they really want to take in some special people. And they're not afraid to declaim that because you have a specific trait, you have less chance of getting accepted. So you apply for this university or this college and then you have to wait for a very long time to get accepted. Years. Years. And it's completely out of your hand. I feel like for refugees it's the same thing. Um, When I say traits, I mean the fact that you're Muslim, or the fact that you're Christian, or Sabian, And because of that, the country that you're being resettled to does not want those kinds of people. They are looking for something else. Or your family's too big, too small. The country that you're getting resettled for, resettled for is looking for a family of five or four. And you have to fit all that criteria and wait years in absolute ignorance, to get accepted, to move on with your life. That's what it's like for me, at least. Well, not for me, but for my family, that's what it's like. And for every single other refugee and asylum seeker in Jordan, and probably every other country.
0: Our second interview today is with Karam Hayef. She is the Educational Specialist at CRP. Karam attained a BA in English Language and Literature from the University of Jordan and went on to do a Master's in Applied Linguistics at Matar University. She was a teacher for a decade in Zarqa after completing her studies and then left teaching to work in professional development training for other teachers. Karam's specialty at CRP is working with kids who have been out of school for numerous years. Uh, There's a law in Jordan that if a kid has been out of the education system for three years, they cannot re-enter. So Karam both supervises and designs curriculum for youth programs. Our conversation took place at CRP, so please take note that there is a slight drop in audio quality, so you may need to adjust your volume. So my first question to you is, generally, how much time does uh, the average refugee uh, kid lose from schooling after they relocate from their home country? Okay, so what we
4: have here in Jordan is usually that between two to three years, uh, refugee children miss schools or they are not registered in schools, And this is because uh, when they come here, they don't know exactly what is the process of registering their kids, and they are very occupied of surviving hiring new homes knowing the area they are really and then after that they care about enrolling their kids in education but I think yeah, in two to three years is a long time and kids loses a lot of uh, academic and schooling during this period of time and uh, now the refugee children really suffer badly in uh, basically uh, having uh, basic literacy and numeracy. And uh, we see kids they can't read or they can't write and uh, and also there's like the emotional uh, challenges that they face which uh, make these things deteriorate and they uh, lose interest in in learning new things because they are dealing and suffering and try to cope up with the new things that is happening in their life. And so they have to go into non-formal education to catch up. So this is like, uh, because uh, you cannot place a child who misses four years or three years in the same class because we know that it, w- it won't work, mm-hmm. and many of them, these uh, it, uh, really uh, refugees, they suffer again from their self-confidence and uh, self-esteem. They struggle with the academic subjects, so they drop out by themselves most in most of the cases. So we have this one formal education or a catch-up education and dropout programs to help them you know, go into schooling but
0: on their own pace. And uh, real quick, let's talk about uh, the logistics issues of, of re-enrolling in school. What kind of uh, obstacles do kids uh, face when once they are relocated to another country, the challenges they face in getting back into school? Uh,
4: we have this uh, issue with the changing policies. For example, the Iraqi refugees, when they came here to Jordan, they have to pay each child who want to enroll in a public school for their duties. And this is a big amount of money for uh, ch- for these, those refugees, especially if they have like three children. That is, that they need to go to school, and also because also the prices of the uniform, the school backpacks, the school supplies as well, they are they cost a lot of money. And if you imagine yourself like a father who has to provide for five children, so many of them we have encountered cases where they, for example, sent the younger one, and the other ones they have been. In, in, to work and try to support the other families. So and then afterward, the, um, these regulation changes and then all, all the kids uh, in Jordan they were admitted freely based on a part on agreement between us and the minister of Education. So sometimes we yeah, we have these changing policies and the families, the ones who yeah. suffer really and the children. So yeah, it depends. But yeah, on the other hand, for example, the Iraqi Christian, they don't like to send their kids into public school, and they prefer like Christian school to be with them because like they never been with other groups. So like this, we have this social cohesion issues, and like uh, uh, respecting diversity, welcoming diversity among some of the groups of refugees, it is uh, it is different, yeah, different level.
0: What are the differences uh, between uh, younger kids who are relocated and older kids who are
4: relocated? Sometimes they have something in common, like for example, uh, most, all of them, they have this kind of stress, but it is in different levels. And it really affects their development, their interaction with other kids, with the society that is around them. But we see like uh, the teens, because, like, misses school for four years and they have, like, this they are becoming, they are growing up, they have, they want to prove their identity, they want to prove themselves. And they, so they, uh, yeah, for example, their reaction it is um, more aggressive than the other ones. While these uh, younger boys, younger girls, uh, maybe like they become, they have this feeling of sadness maybe sometimes anger, they have avoidance, uh, but it is like the level of aggressiveness is not like, yeah, for example, of uh, the older ones. And many of them, they quit schools. And after they, okay, they make a fight or they have, they have been exposed to bullying and uh, because of being Iraqi, because of being a new, because of being uh, a refugee, they take this decision, I don't want to go to school anymore, and they quit. So when they go to school and they have, and especially the boys, in school and where they, we have a high number of uh, discipline issues, we find this uh, in, in these extreme cases. But with the younger one, maybe like it, is, it can be solved, and the parents they follow up with their children, with the school, and things. of course, yeah, I mean the, the refugee like they their mind is very occupied with things. They either of what happened to them, how about the tragedy they have faced, the loss of someone, losing their homes, the long journey to come here, the the suffering they have been through, or they think about the future and what it may hold for them. So it is like they find difficulty in concentrating on certain tasks, doing certain activities, interacting with, and being present at the classroom or doing certain activities. And though we, we design certain programs, certain activities like playing games, uh, even like using wooden blocks, building your own homes, doing these things, just to make them follow certain instructions and being present and fully engaged in these things. But we find them uh, find it uh, uh, difficult for them to concentrate really. Because uh, it is like they are very occupied of what they have been through. Mm-hmm. And this leads to mistrust. In, in the society or uh, on their families or mm-hmm. their fathers even because the, they have this idea you are my father you are my mother you are supposed to protect me and so this is where, where they find the lack of empathy for the other people they don't care about them they become sometimes aggressive they don't sympathize with uh, their stories even if they heard it because they or they are concentrated on themselves and how to survive. It is like thinking and become like, it is not like selfish, but it is like uh, the focus is drawn to themselves. Let's talk real
0: quick about uh, the difference in developmental issues between refugee boys and girls in the classroom.
4: Now, the girl, um, they they experience like fear, stress, but uh, they respond um, better. They like to to form a new relationship. They find like, this is my friend. Maybe like become at the beginning, they are intimidated, they don't want to, but eventually they develop this kind of relation and healthy friendship. I have a friend. They are proud of that. While the boys, I think it is more competitive, the relation between them. And it is like they are more sensitive to anywhere. like, you are a refugee, and so he needs to, and to respond to that, maybe he will hit you. Maybe he will prove himself. And I'm a man. I shouldn't to cry. I shouldn't express my feeling.
0: Are there any particular like uh, psychological effects that are that are unique to uh, girls in schools?
4: The girls, if you want to compare, the girls they tend to be like more. Uh, they use more verbal appeals. Well, if you have fight with your girl with uh, your friend at school you tend you don't use like violence that much but you tend to call her name bad uh, names other things um, and so the, when you talk about bullying at school it's like different types uh, the boys they tend to use physical but the girls they use to do verbal more than that to express themselves or to deal with certain problem and some girls they have a healthy way of dealing with Things, but these things are things that is better in girls.
0: What are what you not seeing right now uh, being done for refugee kids that you would like to see in the future?
4: Of course, you know, I believe the most important thing is education. And uh, those children should be you know, in schools and nowhere. And because, like, we have kids here at the CRP in different ages, they cannot read. They struggle with the basic literacy and numeracy. And though there are many organizations, um, many parties, they try to do their best. But it is like these efforts are scattered, and everyone is and there is nothing official that the kids can go through. To eliminate this, uh, uh, this gap in literacy and numeracy, so it is based on certain efforts and individual efforts. I would, I would like to see. It is like we need to design a comprehensive educational program for those kids so that they can go through no matter where they are if, even if they are staying at home if, even if they are not going to school even if they are working to support their families at least we they have this chance to you know, to learn and uh, to you know, to have this kind of schooling because they are missing schooling uh, and it is affecting them
0: very badly well. Karun, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Thank you, thank you very much. At the end of every podcast, uh, we like to close out by sort of updating uh, you on what's been going on at CRP. So Asha, I haven't been at CRP very much recently in the past month. Uh, Why don't you uh, update me on what's been going on?
1: So in the last week, we're just finishing up the month of Ramadan. And so a group of teens came together at the center and decided to make iftar together, and it was a big hit. Um, 2,000 chickens were also donated for distribution at the center, so there was a huge distribution process, and a lot uh, of refugees and asylum seekers came to collect their chickens. And the after-school program had their graduation, because we just finished an entire year of after-school programming um, for students and children out of school at age 6 to 12. And so we had two graduation ceremonies for the younger kids and the older kids. And
0: it was really great. And they got to celebrate all their accomplishments in the year. That's fantastic. 2,000 chickens. Yeah, 2,000 chickens. That is a lot of chickens. All right. Thank you so much, Asha. Thank you. That wraps up this episode of Collateral Repair Podcast. We hope you learned a lot from it. Uh, Be sure to check back in a month for our next episode. And check out collateralrepairproject.org for more information about the center. Thanks so much.